what to wear and what not to wear? That's a question that confronts most of us in the mornings before we go to work. We may not always admit it, but for the most part, we are quite fashion conscious. As a generation, we are quite fashion conscious. We just don't put on anything. There are some things that are just not in. There are some things that are totally out. Now, we may not all have the same fashion sense, but all of us are concerned about how we look. We may look at people wearing torn-up jeans and think that they have been in a fight and they are indeed the loser. We can't appreciate their fashion style. But all of us, whether we are influenced by magazines like Vogue or Vanity Fair, we are indeed concerned about what we put on. We wear the ties we wear because we like them. When we go to the store, we buy a shirt or a dress because we like them. We just don't go there and pick anything up. We are concerned. And they have mirrors in these department stores for a good reason. Because we are not often quite happy just to pick up a shirt or a suit or a dress until we have turned 10 or 20 times before the mirror and then we still go home and do the same thing. We're concerned about clothing. We're concerned about that which is outward. The concern for clothing and the matter of the, the metaphor of clothing is used by the Apostle Paul in relation to the Christian character. Just as we are concerned about what we wear in terms of the physical clothing, Scripture is concerned in terms of our spiritual clothing, our spiritual garb. And the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3 tells us what is in, tells us what the Christian fashion is, a fashion that never goes out of style. It is always in vogue. In other words, Paul tells us that in a world where fashions are always changing, that there is a fashion that never changes, that is the character of the believer. We find in the passage in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so also must you must do. He's calling them to a Christian character, to wear a particular character. And this metaphor of clothing we find enunciated in verse 12 when he says, put on. That's the metaphor of clothing. In fact, he already invoked this metaphor, referred to this in this same chapter, and already in verse 8 when he says, but now you yourselves are to put off. There the clothing metaphor was introduced in the chapter. Paul is dealing with this whole matter of sanctification, the whole matter of mortification, putting sin to death. And he tells them that they are to put sin to death. He changes the language and says they are to put off. He adopts this metaphor of clothing. They are to disrobe. They are to throw aside, throw off like a dirty garment certain behaviors, certain, uh, certain vices that are displeasing to God. So he says to them, they are to put off Anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy language. In verse 5, he says they're to put to death, but it's the same thing. We need to put off these sinful characteristics fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
Now he comes to the flip side. They are to put these things off. They are to put them to death. Now he says they are to put on virtues. Virtues. What I want us to do is to consider first the affirmation of the text. The affirmation of the Christian identity found in verse 12. Then I want us to look at the exhortation to cultivate these characteristics. So I want to begin by looking at the affirmation of the Christian's identity. I then want to look at the exhortation to cultivate the characteristics that I've here listed. And thirdly, I then want to look at the explanation given for how we are to put in practice these virtues or characteristics. First then, the affirmation of their status. The writer says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. Why does he say therefore? It is because he has already told them that they have put off the old man in verse 9 and his deeds, and they have already put on the new man a new man renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, the new man created by Christ. They have already put off the old man. They have put on the new self, a new self that has been renewed or recreated in, the no in knowledge according to the image of Christ. This, this new man does not admit then any kind of class or status for they are all equal in Christ. It is then because they have put off the old man and they have put on the new man, they are new creations, that he says, therefore, put on. Before he comes to the command to put on, there is an affirmation. He says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, he's going to encourage them to Christian character. But he doesn't just launch into Christian character. He prefaces this with an affirmation of their identity as God's people. And Paul uses a threefold description. He describes the Christian's identity in three ways. First of all, he describes them as the elect of God. Therefore, as the elect of God. This is the only time the term electus appears in the book of Colossians. But it is a term, both this term, the noun and the verb, eklegomai, occur on numerous occasions in the Pauline epistles. The term to elect is simply a term that refers to choice. And the verb to, to elect means to pick out, to choose from a larger number. That's what it means simply in a secular context. In a theological context, the verb to choose refers to God's choice of a specific number of individuals from the mass of humanity for salvation and for eternal glory. They are the elect of God. Therefore, as the elect of God. Often the doctrine of election is one of those fighting issues in the church. There are those who divide themselves in one of two camps. They are either those who uh, accept the doctrine of election or they stand and oppose the doctrine of election. But when the Apostle Paul uses the term, he does not use it as a fighting term. Is a term of encouragement, a term of endearment. They are the elect of God. And what the Apostle Paul intends us to understand is that this is God's first act of his saving grace and mercy to elect, to choose from a mass of humanity, a mass of sinners, those whom he will save. In the Old Testament, shows that God is a discriminating God who distinguishes. He chose 
Israel as his elect people. Notice in Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, Moses could say, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. A special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Of all the nations that existed at that time in history, God chose this little group of people without any political aspiration, without any kind of military prowess, but a weak, insignificant group of people. God chose them to be the vehicles by which his mercy and grace would be revealed to men. In the New Testament, the Bible speaks of the elect. Jesus could say, many are called, but few are chosen. Our Lord Jesus could say, in Matthew 24, verse 22, and unless those days were shortened, the days of tribulation that will come prior to the coming of the Lord, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Matthew 24, 22. Paul speaks of the elect. He says in that marvelous text in Romans 8, verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies that God has chosen for himself a people. And it is precisely because of this that God is to be praised. This language of election is used by Paul, and I'm just using random text. It's littered in his epistles. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation, not only for service, but you. He has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, and the means is sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Peter starts off his epistle by saying, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So God chooses from a large mass of humanity a people for himself. And scripture underscores that election, God's choice, is not based upon any foreseen merit. God was not compelled to choose us because he saw something noteworthy, something acceptable within us. All of us were sinners and undeserving of the choice of God. Stated then in a different way, election is always based upon the sovereign will and upon the good pleasure of God. It is not based upon any condition. It is always by the grace of God and by the goodness of God, by the will and the pleasure of God, by which the believer or which by the sinners were saved and were chosen by God. We see something of this in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. That election is by the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. Paul says that they have been predestined, God has predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. And the, the question is why? Paul answers, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. He did it according to his good pleasure, according to his will. He did it to the praise of his glory so that he might be praised, so that he might be glorified. You and I were chosen not because we were good, we were chosen even though we were not good. And, 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 and the choice of God is grace. It is by grace. That is why Paul, writing to the Romans in chapter 11, says, So even then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. 
election of grace. That his election is by the grace of God. What does grace mean? What What does it mean? It means the unmerited favor of God. Is an election according to the unmerited favor of God. And Paul says to them, you, you in Colossae, are people whom he had never visited, but he knows that they have been converted. He says, therefore, as the elect of God. If you're a Christian, you're not a Christian, first and foremost, by your decision. You're a Christian because of God's decision. You are saved and a part of the kingdom of God because he chose you. His favor rested upon you before your mother and father thought of you before the world was created. God set his favor upon you that you would be his child and gave you and chose you in Christ. And so Paul begins with the affirmation of their status, the identity. He says, therefore, as the elect of God. Who did the electing? God. We are the elect of God. God is the elector and we are the elected. He defines them, secondly, not only as elect, but holy. He is affirming their identity or their status. They're not only God's elect, but they are holy. And we see where the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So election goes back to eternity, but now we see that the purpose of election is that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So you see that Paul in Ephesians combined election and holiness. He tells them that they are the elect of God. He tells them that they are holy. Paul says God chose us in eternity before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame. And believers then are holy. We've been over this ground and argued that holiness refers then to being set apart and devoted to God. And all believers are holy in that sense. Believers and Christians are not perfect. They are not sinless. But we are holy in the sense that we are separated from that which is common and unclean, and we are devoted to God. And Paul calls believers holy in Romans 1.7, in 1 Corinthians 1.2, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, in Ephesians 1, verse 1, in Philippians 1, verse 1. In Colossians 1 verse 2, very often at the beginning of his epistles, he will call them holy. He does it in the word in our English translation, saints, to the saints in Rome, to the saints in Colossae, to the saints. They are holy, they are set apart. They have been taken out of the sphere of the common and the unclean, and they have been induced in the sphere of the holy and set apart for God. So Paul says, not only are you the elect of God, but you are holy, set apart for him. That's how we need to view ourselves. But he describes them thirdly, not only as elect and holy, but beloved. Who are Christians? They are beloved. And there is a, you know, there's an internal harmony in the description that is used of the believers. Because, first of all, they are elect by God in eternity. They are constituted as holy in life. But the reason for their election and the reason that they have been set apart is all down to this love of God. They are loved of God. In Romans 1.7, Paul tells the Romans that they are God's beloved to all who are in Rome, beloved of God. It's one of the greatest thoughts in all of Scripture. Those of us who have attended TBS will not often look fondly upon the writings of Bach. But he was correct when he was asked the question, what is the greatest thought that has ever crossed your mind? And he responded without a beat, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. The greatest thought is that the king of glory 
loves us. The Bible calls Christians God's beloved, loved of God, those who are greatly loved by the Lord. And this love of God, which causes us to be set apart, chosen by him, is first and foremost a sacrificial love. It is not a mere sentiment. It is not a mere feeling. And I'm not asking, I'm not arguing that God does not have emotions. I'm not arguing that God does not have an emotional love, an emotional intensity and passion. You only have to read in the Old Testament, in the book of Hosea, the passion of God for his people. You only have to read God calling to Israel as a wandering child, a wayward child, how his heart yearns for his children. So there is an emotional intensity, a a warm, passionate love for his people. But God's love must be characterized not just by emotional intensity, it is foremost a sacrificial love. And that's what Paul identifies when he speaks to the Romans. He says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How does God show his love? He showed his love by sending Christ. John says the same thing in different words. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The cross then is the final display And the greatest display of the love of God. A love that moved him to give his son. A love that moved Christ to come and to die. Oh, his love then is a sacrificial love. And it's an exclusive love. It's a love that is only particular to those who are his elect. It is an inseparable love, Paul says, for I am persuaded. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have said this over and over again, but you will permit a repetition. You see, those whom God loves once, he loves them forever. Nothing in all of creation, not the hardship, not the struggles of life, not the machinations of the devil, the enemy of our souls. There is no situation, no trial, no hardship, no spiritual power, no demon. Nothing in all of creation can ever separate you from the love of Christ. Because that is a binding love, that is an inseparable love, that is a permanent love. Who's the believer? Well, he begins with an affirmation. We need to know that we are God's elect. And that we are special. Chosen by him. Out of all the people in the world that God could have chosen to be his own, he chose you. He chose you. And this evening there are millions and billions of people who have died And God left them in their sins as an act of judgment upon them for their sins. And we who were no better, and sometimes worse than those who have been bypassed, more ungodly, more wicked, more desperate in our sinfulness. Nevertheless, when he passed by, he covered us with his skirts and says, you are mine. We are his elect. We are his holy people. And his beloved. Well, we see the affirmation of their identity, elect, holy, and beloved. But secondly, we see from our text the exhortation, the exhortation to cultivate the characteristics of Christ. It is precisely because they are God's chosen, it is precisely because they're set apart for Him. And precisely because they are loved by him, that they are called upon now to cultivate these characteristics. So Paul says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. There now is exhortation. An exhortation to put on virtues. But the virtues that they are called to put on, as described in verse 12, 
and 13 are the virtues that characterize Christ. All of these then characteristics are preeminently displayed in Jesus Christ. It is interesting that when Paul uses the verb to put on, he uses all in, also in the context of putting on Christ. Notice in Romans 13 verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does it mean to put on Christ? It means that we are aware of the character and the conduct of Christ. We are to display the character and the conduct of Christ. But Paul uses the same verb there, put on Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells the Galatians, who are thinking of going back to the law, he says to them, but as many of you as were baptized into Christ, joined, by in, by into, joined to Christ by the Spirit, he says, you have put on Christ. You have put on the character of Christ. You have put on the, the conduct of Christ. And, and so Paul now to the, to the Colossians says to them, put on these tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Well, what he's doing there, he's itemizing some of the characteristics of Jesus Christ that we are to display in our life. All of these are found in the Lord. When he says to put on, as I've indicated, it really means to cultivate them. Cultivate. What is he saying? We are to cultivate these things. He does not say, he's not suggesting that we are to produce them. We don't produce the fruit of the Spirit. We don't produce the character of Christ. That is the work of the Spirit of God. We have put on Christ. We are the new creation. It is the Spirit of God who transforms us into the image of Christ. But we are called to be involved in the development of the character of Christ in our lives. And therefore, when he says to put on, it means that they must cultivate these virtues. Now, in verse 5, he lists five virtues. And in a sense, these stand as the contrast, the opposite of the vices that he listed already in verse 5, where he listed five vices in verse 5. Now, here, he, listed, he lists five virtues. And the first thing he says that they're to put on is compassion. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. It's not good enough just to put off sinful behavior. The Christian must grow in the character of Christ, and therefore he must put on Christian characteristics. He says, put on compassion. It's a word, compassion, that has to do with the bowels, a person's viscera, the intestines, because that is where uh, emotions were thought to be housed. Put on that pity that comes from deep within you. That reaction to the misfortune and suffering that, that Christians should be people of compassion, of mercy. We live in a world where there is much suffering. And when you turn on your television, you see children in parts of Africa and other parts of the world with flies around their heads and perching on their bodies and their stomachs are elongated. They're suffering. And we are exposed to those images over and over and over again. And after a while, it doesn't do anything to us. The writer says, you're seeking to please God. There are those in Colossae who are boasting about their visions. They're boasting about the superior knowledge that they have. They're immersing themselves in philosophies. But you, you who want to be like Christ, you who want to live a Christian life, put off these vices and put on these virtues. And one of these must be compassion. We could do a lot of good in our world if we just had a heart of compassion, a heart of mercy. It is that readiness to alleviate suffering. And of course, we have limitations. We are, most of us would not consider ourselves fabulously wealthy. We do not have all the wealth in the world. 
But I suggest that we can do more to help those who are suffering than we now do. We must be compassionate. He says, not only are they put on compassion, they are to put on kindness. Just feeling sorry for people is good, but perhaps not good enough. There is kindness, generosity, that willingness to rob from ourselves to help others. That virtue which overflows in goodness to others. It's generosity. It's going to great lengths to help others out who are in a tight spot. Kindness. Then he says they are to put on Humility, a term that was reviled in the ancient world, that was viewed as weakness. But it really means to be lowly in mind. It means not to think too highly of ourselves. And humility in the Bible is not seen as weakness but as a strength. You see, there are those who were humble but strong. Our Lord Jesus Christ was an imagery of humility but great strength. The martyrs were those who were humble, but they were willing to stand for what was right. They were willing to give their lives for their faith. And so we must never confuse humility with weakness. But he says, these who are putting on the character of the new man, the Christian character are to seek to cultivate compassion and kindness and humility, lowliness of mind. One of the signs that we are not truly humble as we ought is that we think we are humbler than other people. You know, I have very... I can't count on one hand how many times I've I've met a person who could confess that they were humble, that they were proud. Most people will confess that they are humble. It's a natural thing to do. And and the fact, you know, the fact of the matter is that most of us think that we are humble. And do you know why? Do we know why we know that we're not as humble as we ought to be? Because we can spot pride in everybody else but ourselves. We can smell out pride in a man a mile away. We just look at it the way he walks or hold his head and we say, ah, there goes a proud fellow. And, and by the way, we are not going to take any kind of gain saying nobody can argue against you. That's definitive. We have written the fellow off his proud. And yet, that man that we see walking down the road and is written off as proud is ourselves. Because there are others who are looking at us just like we're looking at the fellow there or that lady saying that that, that, that lady is proud. There's somebody passing by looking at us thinking the same. There has to be a lowliness of mind. And you know, it's not the kind of slovenness, that cringing attitude that shows that we are humble. It's really how we think of ourselves and how we think of others. Do we put others above ourselves? It's it's an attitude of heart and mind and thinking. We are trying to please God. The writer says we are to put on humility. We are not to think too highly about ourselves. Now, let me just say this before I move on. You know, we mustn't, in, in seeking to be humble, to be disingenuous. You know, we, we aren't, we aren't to, you know, you, you know here, here's a man one day, I think he went, he was called up as a, as a witness in the case. And the, 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 the lawyer who was cross-examining him says, now, what authority do you have actually in giving evidence in this case? And he says, he, the guy responded, well, I'm the world's greatest expert on this subject. And, and he thought, you know, this man is so full of himself. But it was true. He had written the textbooks that were studied in university. Other professors were referring to him as the standard. 
So admitting one's strengths and gifts is not a sign of pride. What is a sign of pride is when we refuse to recognize that even the gifts we have are imperfect, and more importantly, forgetting that whatever we have have come from God. It is by God's grace alone. He says you have to put on humility. He says, fourthly, having put on compassion and put on kindness and put on humility, they are to put on gentleness. It is our Lord Jesus Christ who was humble in mind. It is like him we ought to humble ourselves, but it is he who was gentle. And this is a term, gentle, that means one who is not overly impressed with his own importance. It's not to have that attitude of self-importance. That's a gentle person. It is to treat others with kindness, care. And Jesus could say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. It ought to characterize our response to others. So, Paul says, put on as the elect of God. Put on as God's holy and beloved people. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness. And then he says, put on long-suffering. That's the term for patience. It means to bear up under a load. The ability to withstand insult, and injury without hitting back. It is to bear up under great pressure. And the writer says they're to put on these. They're called upon to put on these characteristics, all of which are found in Christ. And these virtues are not only essential for the Christian character, but they are essential for communal unity. You, you, you see how all of these, these virtues that are call, they're called upon to put on have a relationship to other people. In other words, these are not just virtues about ourselves. These virtues have a direct bearing upon others, and particularly the well-being of the church. They're, they're in a sense, if I, if I may coin, at least in my knowledge, an expression, they are social virtues in, 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 in a biblical sense because they affect the community. You see, tenderness or tender mercies or kindness or humility or meekness or long-suffering always have an object. You see, when we show humility, we show humility with regards to others. We show kindness with regards to others. We show long-suffering and patience with regards to others. And therefore, these are the virtues that will cause the church of Jesus Christ to grow and to nourish. They are social in that they, are, they require another object often apart from ourselves. Well, we have seen the affirmation of their status. We have seen the exhortation to put on these characteristics. But now we see an explanation We've seen the exhortation, put on. Now we see an explanation of how these virtues are to be practiced. And here the writer says, after the list in verse 12 of characteristics that are put on, he says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. He's, there's an explanation here. What he's doing in verse 13, he's explaining the means by which believers practice this compassion, this kindness, this humility, this gentleness, this long-suffering. And the way they do that, he says, is bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Two ways in which we exp express our compassion, our kindness, our humility, our gentleness, our long-suffering is by Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Grammatically, in other words, grammatically, verse 13 is dependent upon verse 12. That is, in verse 12 is the main verb. 
the main verb in verse 12 is to put on. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies and so on. But in verse 13, we have a participle. And the participle in the original is modifying the main verb. So what he's saying then is put on these characteristics. And the way, one of the ways you do that, one of the ways you put on compassion and kindness is by bearing. By bearing with others. Because a compassionate person, a kind person, will bear long. It means that they will tolerate others. We may think of ourselves as incapable of abiding fools. But the Bible asks us to abide even those who are being foolish. To tolerate them. It doesn't mean that we accept people's behaviors right, but we show a patience with them, an unwillingness to write them off, an unwillingness to cast them away. We bear with one another. We tolerate them, even though they may be difficult and, yes, sometimes annoying. And he goes on to say that a second way in which we demonstrate these characteristics is forgiving one another. It means to let go, releasing them from their obligation and debt to us. And he places before them Jesus Christ as the one who has forgiven. He's saying, you must forgive, even as Christ forgave you. So Christ and his forgiveness of us becomes the basis of our forgiveness of one another. You see, we develop these characteristics and we demonstrate them in ways like bearing long and forgiving. But the writer makes it clear in the next verse, really the climax of this, these verses, but above all, he's saying pay attention, but above all these things, put on love. Put on love. What he's saying then is that the principal means by which compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and long-suffering, even tolerance and forgiveness, the way that these virtues thrive in the people of God is by the way of love. Above all these things, he says, yes, put on compassion, put on kindness, put on all of these things, put on patience, but above all these things, put on love. Put on love. He says, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Perhaps the ESV gives us a clearer sense of what the writer is calling them to do. Because here, they are called upon to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's what the ESV translates this verse. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The word that Paul uses, that bind, that word bind, refers to something like a strap. It refers to something that fastens. And so he's describing love as a fastener, a strap. He says, listen, I want you to cultivate these virtues. But what binds these virtues together? What holds them together is love. And what he's saying is that apart from love, that sacrificial, self-giving love, there will be no compassion. There will be no tenderness. There will be no kindness. You need love to bind them up together. You see, whenever you see within a congregation that compassion is at work, gentleness is at work, kindness is at work. It is only because love binds them together. It is because this is the church demonstrating love. So he says, put on these things and above all, put on love 
which calls them to work together for the harmony and for the good of the church. He says, put on love which binds everything in perfect harmony. Scriptures define love as a central characteristics of the Christian. And Jesus could say, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. Paul could tell the Romans in chapter 13 that love is the fulfillment of the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not harm a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13 and so on. Well, Paul defines love, that which suffers long, that which is kind and does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, that does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, does not provoke, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in equity, rejoices in the truth. You see, Christian character and Christian characteristics can only develop in an atmosphere of love. And so they are to those who are loved by God. Notice the, root, the same root in verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, that word beloved comes from the root from which we get love. You see in verse 14, put on love. In other words, it is only as we have come to know the love of God, it is only as we have come to know that we are beloved of God, that others can become our beloved. It is only as we are loved by God that we can all love others. Friends, the call to put on these virtues is a call to cultivate Christ-likeness. You need to recognize that when you were saved, God saved you and recreated you and is recreating you into the pattern of Christ. That we were saved ultimately not just to be with Christ, but to be like Christ. That's the goal. And in calling us to put on these characteristics, we are being called to be like Christ. And this call to be like Christ, to put on the characteristics of Christ, is not a call to make a fashion statement. You know, many wear clothes to make a statement. The problem with that is that we put on something that we like, that's something that is in vogue, and we take it off just as easily. We live in a world where not only are there designer clothing, there are designer personalities. We can become whatever we want. We can change our personality to suit whatever goals we have. We, we can go into a meeting. You, you, you find a fellow who is a very diffident, cowardly, frightened, easily frightened fellow. But he's told when he goes for, goes for an interview, you've got you, you to assert confidence. And so he stands before the mirror and he practices and he walks in there and he's jovial and he, he has all of the confidence. But that's not really his personality. He's just adopting a, per, it's a designer personality for a particular hour, for a particular task. Well, when the apostle Paul says we're to put on Christ, he's not saying that we are to choose a designer personality. He's not saying we are to have a fashion statement. This is not something to be artificial to who we are. It, to be, it is to be part and parcel of our identity, these things. These things must be worked in from the inside and work outwardly. This is to be who we are. And when we cultivate these things, they must be ongoing. But this call then is to put on the character of Christ means that we are to cultivate these things in our lives. Because we have been saved. Because we have been delivered from sin. Because the Spirit of God is producing these things in us. This is the work of grace. Notice the, the Bible shows us our relationship in this matter of Christian character to that of the, the Lord our God. Paul tells the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. It's God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasures. What does he say? Cultivate your own salvation because God is working in you. 
He's giving you the will. He's giving you the power to do these things. And Paul is saying to them, put on these characteristics. Cultivate. Seek to practice compassion. And practice kindness and humility and meekness. And long-suffering. Practice these things. Because ultimately it is God who is working these characteristics, the characteristics of Christ. Let me say very rapidly. You must recognize that in seeking to develop Christian character, that the hinge virtue, the hinge grace, the hinge characteristic, that is, that is the virtue upon which all other virtues move, is love. It's the base of virtue. It's the primary virtue. Without it, none of these things will grow within us. Seek then to grow in love by the grace of God. And finally, as you cultivate the character of Christ, do so in this great hope and this great expectation that as you put on the character of Christ, one day you'll put on a new body. Paul uses the same verb. In Romans 15, 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible mass, and here it is, put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass a saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Put on these characteristics. Because one day you will put on a new glorified body. You will be exactly as Christ wants you to be mirroring his character. A day coming when, as you seek to grow in Christ's likeness, Lord Jesus Christ will come and transform you so that you will put on his glorious body, a body that is analogous to his glorious body. Do this knowing that your labor is not in vain for Jesus' sake.